Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 93404. Uh, Arthur L. Do you know how your client's name is? Is it Gustafson or Gustafson? Gustafson. Arthur L. Gustafson versus Alloyd Company, Incorporated. Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As the briefs indicate, this case turns in large part on whether or not the phrase, by means of a prospectus or oral communication, as used in Section 12.2 of the Securities Act of 1933, is a phrase of limitation. The case also turns on whether, by Section 12.2, the Act covers negotiated private transactions, even though the Act does not otherwise intrude into such business arrangements. The House report answers both these questions, stating the bill affects only new offerings of securities. It does not affect ordinary redistribution of securities. As to liability provisions, the report states the bill's civil liabilities attach only when there's been an untrue statement of material fact in the registration statement or the prospectus, the basic information on which the public is solicited. This case involves no new offering of securities and presents the paradigm example of a private transaction the Act plainly left free from regulation other than by its Section 17. Art Gustafson, Dan McLean, and Francis Butler sold their company to a sophisticated investor which conducted its own due diligence and negotiated the deal it wanted. The buyers had full access to information about Alloyd Indeed, Mr. McLean and Mr. Butler were officers and shareholders of the buyer. The stock purchase agreement contained numerous risk-allocating provisions. In particular, the parties knew that Alloyd's interim earnings were estimated. So, as is common, they closed with an estimated purchase price subject to a later dollar-for-dollar adjustment after an audit determined actual earnings. They plainly could have, but did not, agree that some multiple of the variance should apply to the transaction. After the audit, the parties agreed that the estimated price had been $815,000 too high, and sellers paid that amount to buyers as the agreement required. Buyers who knew Alloy's interim earnings were estimated now claim that sellers warranted a certain level of such earnings in the agreement. They claim a breach of that warranty which is a contract law matter, and also claim a violation of Section 2 of the Security 12.2 of the Securities Act. They have made no claim of fraud. As to the text, Section 12.2 claim they assert, it is that the purchase agreement itself, the negotiated purchase agreement, was a prospectus, and they claim they are entitled to rely on oral communications during due diligence about Alloyd's inventory, even though the agreement specifically provided such oral statements were superseded by the terms of the agreement. Buyers seek rescission of the transaction or rescissionary damages, even though by the agreement they agreed that they would not seek rescission. The Act, and Section 12.2 in particular, makes a seller, we submit, a fiduciary only when there is an initial public offering of securities. It does not do so in the context of ordinary secondary transactions, such as privately negotiated resales of stock that have never been publicly distributed. A stock purchase agreement 
memorializing the terms of a negotiated deal is not a prospectus, nor are discussions in the course of due diligence regarding the reliability of inventory estimates. Circular, not just a purchase agreement. Would an offering circular fit within the definition of Section 210? An, an offering circular would certainly be a circular, I think, within the meaning of Section 210. It specifically uses that phrase, but the preceding words in 210s, the very first definition of prospectus is prospectus itself, which is commonly defined then had a public solicitation connotation. We believe the correct interpretation, as demonstrated by numerous portions of the House report and other commentary by draftsmen, is an offering circular is a prospectus when it's used to solicit the public to purchase securities. But if it's in connection with a private offering, it would not is that what you're saying or not? We don't believe that would be the proper definition under Section 210 or particularly under Section 212, given the context, context of 212 as a liability provision in the Act. But 210 just says offers any security for sale. Doesn't, it's not, the words of the statute aren't limited to a public offering. The very first word that Section 210 uses is prospectus in defining what a prospectus is. Prospectus, as commonly used then, connoted or was defined as a document prepared by a company describing its stock or prospects and inviting the public to subscribe to an issuer, inviting the public. That's the first word used in the definition of prospectus. We believe the following words have similar import. Where is that limitation used? I mean, suppose you had what might be called an offering circular in connection with a private offering, but it was labeled prospectus. Would it, would it then fit within the definition? We don't believe so. Not for Section 210 purposes, and certainly not for Section 12.2 purposes, because of their use of the word prospectus used as a selling document. And when you say similar import, you mean public offering import? Public offering, yes, Your Honor. So if this deal had, no, it would still be, well, if this deal had been done with the company, the control company issuing new shares and then Gustafson uh, redeeming the shares that they had originally, then that, otherwise everything is the same. That would be covered, right? If Alloyd had issued new shares to the, the, the buyers? Yes, the buyers got new shares and then the sellers uh, redeemed their old shares. I don't think... As to the first portion of the transaction... The issuance by alloyed of new shares to the buyers, the exemption of Section, I think it's 4.2 of the Act, would exempt that transaction. As to the second portion, a, a redemption then of the seller's shares by the company, uh, I believe that would also be a 4.2 exempted transaction, but I'm not certain. But in either event, because there is no public uh, selling, no public offer involved in the transaction, no but, then, then, but then you would have to make your distinction turned on the absence of a public offering, not on the sale versus resale. In other words, there. I gave you a situation where you end up with the same result, but in one case it's done in the form of a sale of new shares, redemption of old shares. In the other, it's done in the form of just a direct sale of the... There, there is some... Uh, authority, particularly in the, in the comments of legislators, and I think these are cited in the SIA's brief in particular, for the proposition that 
the Act just does not apply to transactions in old stock, period. Some of the commentary in the House report is inconsistent with that sort of declaration because the commentary in the House report indicates that if there's a redistribution of old stock, either by a company or a controlled person, that transaction is subject to regulation by the Act. Uh, to the extent one prefers to rely on the House report, declared uh, rationale, or the Congressman's uh, statements of intent that the Act doesn't apply to resales of old stock at all, I think either way uh, you reach the same result as to the application. Yeah, but I'm giving you two ways of doing the sa- essentially the same deal. One would involve a resale, and the other would be a first sale. Uh, and wholly apart from the private versus public sale, I think you said that um, resales are never included? Some congressmen so stated when they were debating the act. But that's not your position. That is part of our position. One view that could be taken of the act based on those statements is the act just doesn't apply to resales of old stock, period. That's all it needs, just a couple of congressmen? It's not even in a committee report? Just a couple of congressmen? And that is enough to interpret the act that way? No, Your Honor. I think the preferred view is the view that is articulated in our briefs, that the House report carefully lays out how the bill, the bill regulates such transactions. If a redistribution of old stock looks like a public offering, becomes a public offering, then the Act applies. I think that is the better. You don't rely at all on the distinction between a sale and a resale, do you? You rely on the distinction between public offerings and non-public offerings. That is the primary position we take. There is a different position. I'm sorry. You wouldn't contend that a secondary offering, say I'm a major shareholder of General Motors and I have a public offering of my stock? You'd admit that's covered, wouldn't you? I would admit that is. I personally believe that is covered by Section 12.2. Uh, I personally also believe that that is a, a transaction that the Act requires to register. Of course. I'm just saying, but, but there are some secondary offerings that must be registered. So there's no basis in the, in the statute for drawing a distinction simply about, about whether it's a primary offering or a secondary offering. I think the only basis is the statements over and over in, 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 in the House report and by legislators that it applies to new stock. And looking at just the entire structure of the Act, it just does not appear to be designed to apply to secondary transactions, period, unless they're public offerings. That's my view as to the proper position to come down on. Buyers in the SEC argue that Section 12.2 extends far beyond the otherwise limited coverage of the Act and applies to all communications in all contexts involving sales of securities. Their argument in, in both their briefs, is based in part on the 1948 decision of Moore versus Gorman and its progeny. They reason, as that court did, that Section 12.2 covers secondary transactions and including private resales because Section 4 exempts such transactions from Section 5 but does not exempt such transactions from Section 12. Stellar's position, of course, is that this begs the initial question. What did Section 12.2 intend to regulate in the first instance? Plainly, Congress would not have seen any need to exempt a transaction from Section 12.2 if it didn't perceive the transaction as covered by Section 12.2 in the first place. Well, Mr. Jenkins, I guess the problem is that the language of the Section 12.2 does say that any person who offers or sells a security 
by means of a prospectus or oral communication, which includes an untrue statement, is liable. So the language itself, of course, is broad, as you have to concede. I uh, respectfully do not so concede. The language itself is limiting language. If Congress had meant to say it broadly, it would have said any communication, or it would have said nothing, as it did in Section 17 of the Act. Section 17 says you shall not acquire money by means of any untrue statement. That is a broad statement. When they put the phrase by means of a prospectus or oral communication in Section 12.2, they had to be connoting some limitation. We believe the limitation is the, the limitation that flows from the natural lay understanding of the term prospectus, which is a document soliciting the public to subscribe to an issue of stock. We don't think Section 210 requires that you go any differently, and indeed, if it does, as the buyers are attempting to read Section 210, why did Congress not simply use the word any written communication or broadcast in Section 210? It used many more words than that. We think that the usage of all of the words have to be read together in light of the initial word, prospectus, as further communications which are used to solicit the public to purchase securities. And then having, having defined prospectus in a way that's contrary to the definition in the statute, you define oral communication the same way by sort of guilt by association, right? It, it does say prospectus or oral communication. And how do you get oral communication to mean something less than an oral communication? Certainly uh, by guilt by association or no or associus or whichever term you want to put on it, uh, and by the reverse reasoning that also applies to Section 210. If they meant any communication, why didn't they, they just simply say so? They knew how to write that way. That's the way they wrote Section 17. When they used more words than just any communication, they were connoting limitation. We have articulated in our briefs where we believe the limitation leads. Uh, the SEC and the buyers are in the position of necessarily being all or nothing. If it's totally unlimited, their view is the, the phrase does require application to every communication in every context involving securities. As just mentioned, the list of items that 12.210 uses in defining prospectus is limited to selling statements. The words used when the Act was passed were, first, any prospectus, Notice, circular, advertisement, letter, which could be broad, or communication, written or by radio, which offers any security for sale. That is treating and describing a specific type of communication, not a negotiated stock purchase agreement, and not comments made during the course of due diligence, which the parties agreed were superseded by the stock purchase agreement. One of the briefs in support of... uh of respondents said we discussed the Section 410A2 of the Uniform Securities Act, said it was similar to 12.2, and said that the consensus among the states is contrary to your position. The consensus is that both private sales and secondary market transactions are covered. Well, for the, the section of the Uniform Securities Act that they're referring to, does not, specifically does not include the phrase by means of a prospectus or oral communication. 
Those words are left out of that act. Certainly with those words left out, I think they're correct. The Uniform Securities Act does apply to such transactions. But it's, it's an awfully big distinction. I mean, they're, they're saying the things mean the same, even though the 33 Act has words of limitation in them that the Uniform Act does not have. I thought perhaps the reason for uh, the use of the word prospectus is it's a term of art, which is as broad as you say, but also encompasses A and B, which are exceptions, in 210. You know, it's, it defines prospectus as any prospectus, notice, circular, advertisement, letter, or communication. But then it specifically says, by the way, two things are not prospectuses, and that's if you comply with certain SEC rules and so forth. So that the reason that they wouldn't say any written communication is they wanted to tie it directly to that definition. Except that that would have been so much easier to do to just say any written, defin- any written communication or broadcast. But, but then, it wouldn't, then it wouldn't have had the two exceptions, A and B. See, if they said any written communication, it wouldn't pick up the two exceptions, which are not relevant here. Because the, it, it, I might be not right about that, but that, that's... Are, are you referring to the... Uh, it's called the free writing? The 210, it defines prospectus, and then says, as very broadly, and then says, accept that. Accept that. A communication sent or given and so forth, and then it says, and a notice circular shall not be deemed a prospectus if. You know, that stuff. Right. Those are referring to two categories. Nothing of to do with this. Well, in some, one, in some sense, they are related, that the A part of that exception is reference to so-called free writing, which is specifically permitted. The whole intent of carving that out is to per- specifically permit free writing yeah. during the period after a statutory perspective. Right, but you, you, my question is, your, your argument depends on, well, if they meant any written communication, why didn't they just say it? And one possible reason they didn't just say it is because they wanted to use the word prospectus, which would then have the technical exceptions written into it. That, that was my question. But I, I, unless I'm missing it, I nonetheless still believe the same result would be re- reached if they'd written any communication. Prospectus means any communication. They would have still needed to carve out those two uh, types of communications from the definition. Unless I'm missing something. Yeah. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> if you want to talk about what would have been an easier way to say it, I mean, you've made allusions to that several times. I, I find it very odd that the limitation that, you, that you're seeking to import into the statute would be imported by the word prospectus rather than by the word sale. I mean, that limitation, it would have been way up at the top of Section 12. Any person who publicly offers or sells a security or offers or sells to the public a security, why would you, why would you uh, seek to import that limitation that it has to be a public offering or sale much later in the provision, way all the way down by... by by saying who, who, who offers or sells by means of a prospectus. Aha, prospectus must mean a public offering. It's a very strange way to do it. You I think the reason that... offering or sale. I, I think the reason that Congress didn't put public offering or sale is by that point in the statute, if you look at how the statute is drafted, it's, it's clear that the whole statute only applies to public offerings or sale, and the words would have just been surplus. Well, you just said se- Section 17. Is 17 is a unique distinction. Well, so if, if 17 is not so limited, why then 12-2 could be not so limited? Two answers. One, the language of 17 is, in comparison to Section 12, significantly different and significantly broader, as this Court observed in, in United States versus Naftalin. Second, there is specific commentary in the Senate report 
that this court felt clearly showed an intent that Section 17 extend beyond the rest of the provisions of the Act and extend beyond them in the sense that it was applicable to secondary transactions. The court uh, felt that both of those uh, points warranted a treatment of Section 17 as departing from the other scope of the Act. Following up on Justice Scalia's question, am I correct in understanding that the term public offering is not defined in the statute? I believe that's correct. Rather, they, what they do, they talk, use the broad term sale and then list a series of exemptions from the registration requirement. And anything that's, that's non-exempt is, therefore, becomes public in, in the way we use the term. I believe that's correct also. Section 4 exempts certain transactions from Section 5, uh, but not from Section 12. That's uh, Does that silence suggest that Section 12 applies to transactions that do not have to be registered? We believe not. What we know that Section 12 applies to transactions in exempt securities that do not have to be registered. That, that is pretty clear from the language that got added to Section 12.2. The, the point is that the style of the Act does use exemptions in, in Section 4, ex- exempting one section from another. That's correct in terms of exempting transactions, if you will, and securities from Section 5, which is the heart of the Act, and, and the section from which violation uh, flows. Uh, the, the, uh, the fact... Excuse me. Apologize. I think I've lost the thrust of the question. <laughs> oh, the exemption from Section 12.2 is just only necessary if 12.2 was intended to cover. We believe it wasn't, as the House report makes clear at various points. Is it your position that the word prospectus includes um, only transactions required to be registered under no. Section 5? No. Prospectus can clearly be a term that applies in the context of a public distribution of an exempt security. The Act, for whatever reasons, chose to exempt the security, but if there's a public distribution of that exempt security, uh, plainly Section 12.2 intends to bring the communications, selling communications, oriented toward the public within its definition in that context. The Act treats government securities in a fairly unique way, which we believe supports our interpretation of Section 12.2. Government securities are specifically carved out with Section 12.2. They bring in resales, they bring in public sales of all other securities, but exclude public sales of government securities obvious reasons of comedy and that sort of thing, or perhaps even constitutional considerations. If, as the buyers claim, Section 12.2 was some broad remedy, though, that applies to all aftermarket trading and so on, why would the Congress have felt any need to, in that aftermarket context, still exempt retailers who might make misleading statements about government securities from the coverage of the provision? We believe that that special position of the government in Section 12.2, or any governmental entity, further reflects the fact 
that Section 12.2 was perceived as applying solely in a public offering context, that's when they intended to protect the government, even if the government made an untrue statement, not in later contexts. I will reserve the remaining time, if I may. Yes, yes, Mr. Jenkins. If, if I could just ask you uh, one question. Excuse me, Chief Justice. Uh, the brief uh, of the amicus uh, for the Securities Industry Association says that research reports would be covered uh, if we were to rule against you and in favor of the respondent. And um, and tells us the adverse consequences of that. Uh, do, you, do you agree with their theory in that? I think there's a possibility of research reports being included. There is also the potentiality, which I believe also applies to a stock purchase agreement, to conclude that those are not the kind of selling documents that even 210 intended to include, even if you apply it as including all written communication. The question is, what is a selling document? Yes, and I think that point is even uh, touched upon in the buyer's briefs, that hey, maybe they're not a a selling document and therefore not a, a prospectus. Uh, I think the same argument can be made as to a prospectus itself. I do think in the, in the context of research reports, so there's a severe danger that the issuer of the report could be deemed a seller, having used a prospectus, and the liability imposed by Section 12.2 in that context on one who just receives a commission for selling stock is drastic. Very well, Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Kopecki, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, we begin with the presumption that the plain language of the statute reflects Congress's intent. Here, neither the text of Section 12.2 nor the structure of the Act as a whole supports imposing upon Section 12.2 the limitations that petitioners ask this Court to read into that express civil remedy. Well, Mr. Kopecki, uh, in 210, uh, after it says uh, the term prospectus means any prospectus, etc., etc., which offers any security for sale. Uh, now, would you say that an, or simply an, agree, uh, uh, an agreement of sale signed by both parties is always something which offers a security for sale? I'm not sure an agreement, per se, would always offer a security for sale. I think in this case the agreement clearly did. The why, why is that? Well, the agreement here was the culmination of a long process. The agreement included specifically representations by the sellers that were made as an inducement, and that's in the language of the agreement itself, as an inducement to the buyers to buy the stock. So the agreement itself was part of the selling process. So if, if there had been no representations in the agreement, then perhaps it would not be a prospectus? I think perhaps it would not be. Section 12.2 reaches those communications that convey information the buyer about some security. If there's no representation being made, then I'm not sure how you would ever have a cause of action under Section 12.2. But take a very simple agreement in which the seller represents that uh, he or she is the owner of the stock. The only representation says, I, I as the owner hereby offer the following stock. You describe it and you send it in the mail that if you want to buy it, sign here. That would be a prospectus, wouldn't it? In my view, it would, because in that case, there would be a representation being made about the security. You have very simple transactions would be covered by this. It is conceivable that It could be true just five shares of stock. Of course, you would have to prove that the person who made that statement was negligent. Sure, it has to be some, something right. that he, in fact, didn't own three of the shares or something like correct. that. But that would That's be federal correct. jurisdiction to resolve that kind If he used the jurisdictional means. Right. I would agree. Excuse me. I thought negligence was not required under Section 12. It is, Your Honor. It is. It's an affirmative defense. The seller is required to prove that he was not negligent. 
But if he can prove that he was not negligent, not. there is no liability under the statute. It's affirmative. But it, it is commonly referred to as a negligence-based Mr. liability. Mr. Kopecki, if your interpretation of the statute prevails, wouldn't it virtually swallow up any 10b-5 causes of action? Not at all, Your Honor. The, the scope of transactions covered by Section 12.2 is a very small subset of those now covered by 10b-5. In, in this respect, 10b-5 covers any statement or omission in connection with the sale of the securities. It doesn't require that there be a buyer-seller relationship between the parties. Most 10b-5 actions and most class actions under 10b-5 are brought in the context of statements by issuers that then get relied upon by the market or by some buyer who bought his stock from somebody else, not from the issuer. That is the vast majority of 10b-5 cases. Those would be unaffected by this, by this case because Section 12.2 simply doesn't reach them. Section 12.2 requires privity between a buyer and a seller. But where, where a 10b-5 action would also lie for a plaintiff um, such as you represent, your preferred route would be 12, Section 12.2, I assume, because of its attorney's fees and the lesser requirements for proof. Yeah, the attorney's fees would be hard for the plaintiff to get in this case, so I don't think that's a motivating factor. The negligence standard is obviously a benefit. Okay. So it is true that in those categories of cases where there's an overlap between Section 12.2 and 10b-5, a plaintiff would prefer to sue under 12.2, just as in the context of a registered public offering of securities, if there's a misstatement in the registration statement, the plaintiff in that case would much prefer to sue under Section 11 of the 33 Act, which has no scienter requirement whatsoever, than under 10b-5, where he would have to prove fraud. I was going to say, what is your answer to the uh, question why the drafters didn't simply use the word statement? Uh, in place of prospectus or, or oral communication? The answer to that question is not clear from the legislative history, so I can only speculate, but let me, let me offer a couple of explanations. One, the statute was basically walking into new territory. Um, there had not been significant regulation of the securities industry. I think it is reasonable for Congress to have started with some terms that were known and commonly used, prospectus, circular notice, and then work from that in increasing breadth, ending with the term written communication. Could they have simply said any communication or any written communication? They certainly could have. I think a second explanation is uh, that, as pointed out in the Solicitor General's brief, we know that the draftsman started with the British Companies Act as a model, and the British Companies Act has a definition of prospectus that starts out similarly to the definition in this case, uh, however, in this case, the drafters diverted significantly because the British Companies Act referred to public offerings of securities. That was eliminated from the definition of prospectus by the Congress that enacted the 33 Act. Under the British Companies Act, would there be a remedy such as this, this transaction? Under the British Companies Act, uh, well, certainly, if we were relying on a prospectus, I think we'd have a hard time because the British Companies Act defines prospectus to include a public offering. So I think we would have a harder case. Um, do not have clearly in mind what the British Companies Act says about oral representations, which is a key part of our case here. So I don't know if we could win under that statute. Has this issue been litigated over in our... Uh, Your Honor, I confess I have not studied that. Yes, you brought up the British Companies Act. I, uh, fair, fair question. Right. How would you answer Justice Kennedy's question uh, that was brought up in the SIA brief, the question of the research reports done by a brokerage firm? I, I think it is far from clear that brokerage research reports would be subject to liability under Section 12.2 for a couple of reasons. 
First, in order to have liability under Section 12.2, you must be a seller. You must be a statutory seller. It's unclear, uh, far from clear, I think, that someone who issues a research report is a seller. Uh, in Pinter versus Dahl, this Court explained what it means to be a statutory seller under Section 12.1. Assume for a minute that definition extends to 12.2. You must either be the person who passes title to the security or one who solicits the sale for your own financial benefit. So someone who issues an analyst report is not necessarily soliciting anybody to buy stock. Second, the, the, the analyst report itself would have to be a prospectus. And prospectus is defined as a document that offers or confirms the sale of a security. Now, an analyst report does not offer a security for sale, nor does it confirm the sale of a security. I think the concerns about open-ended liability for analysts is, is significantly overblown. Why, why do you say that prospectus is defined as a document that offers or confirms the sale of a security? Where do you... I thought it means, I thought you, part of your case was that precisely that it means uh, any notice circular, not just, it means any prospectus, notice circular, advertisement, letter of communication, written or whatever. That, that offers, but any of those that offers I any see, security for which sale. Offers, which right. offers any right. security for sale. Right, exactly. That's the end of the, of the definition. All of those things, any of them have to offer the security for gotcha. sale or they're not covered. Well, that's... Although my thought favored you, I hope you'll disabuse me of it if it's not correct, because I'll just get mixed up if it is. But I thought that the reason they used the word prospectus instead of any written communication is because they wanted to pick up that particular definition with its limitations. And the limitations are two you just mentioned, plus the fact that a written prospectus, a written communication, is not a prospectus, if a registration statement has been filed previously and certain things have been done. That's correct. They wanted to build that all in, which I, the word written communication couldn't have done. Not Am I on a correct track? I agree with that, Your Honor. Fine. And why did they use the word oral communication next? Because oral communication doesn't have those limitations. Again, the, the legislative history doesn't enlighten us much on why they used oral communication. I believe what Congress was getting at in enacting the statute was the process by which owners of securities solicit people to buy those shares from them. And there are two ways you can do that. You can do it in writing or you can do it orally. Um, if the question is why didn't they subject oral communications to the free writing exception, I don't know the answer to that. And that, um, that cuts off my, my thought because I can't get it to work with oral. I understand. And, and I'm, I'm not sure the logic of all that hangs together, and there's been a lot of question raised about exactly what the free writing exemption is meant to accomplish and why it was there. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't answer how the oral communication precisely fits into that exception from the definition of prospectus. A, a prospectus has to be related to the registration statement, doesn't it? No. I thought Section 10 required that. Section 10 requires what has to be in a prospectus that is issued in conjunction with a registered offering of securities. If you have a registered offering, the Act requires you to provide certain information to the SEC in your registration statement. It also requires you to provide certain information to investors in the prospectus that's issued with that registration statement. But those requirements, the strict, detailed requirements of Section 10, apply only to prospectuses issued in connection with registered offerings of security. But, but the Section 10 doesn't say some prospectuses. It says all. Um, so I, I had thought. I think where, where that comes out. Qualification. I think that comes out of Section 5, Your Honor. Section 5 makes it unlawful 
to sell any securities that have been registered unless you comply with the provisions of Section 10. So Section 10 only — So then you can limit the term prospectus in Section 10, at least, by reference to other provisions of the Act. I believe I believe that's correct, Your Honor. The meaning of section of prospectus in Section 10 is defined by its context, which is in reference back to a registered offering under Section 5. Well, are punitive damages available in this sort of a, of a cause of action? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Why not? Um, I'm not aware of any case that has upheld punitive damages. Um, are punitive damages available under a 10b-5 action? I'm not sure. Let me return, if I could, to uh, what I think are the key points in our argument today. One is that the language of Section 12.2 simply does not expressly impose the limitation that petitioners are asking for. Second, the other provisions of the Act demonstrate that when Congress meant to exempt either a particular type of transaction or a particular type of security from some portion of the Act, it did so explicitly. And we've talked about, uh, during Mr. Jenkins' argument, Sections 4.2, 4.1, which create express exemptions from the registration requirement. There is no comparable exemption from Section 12.2. And further, again, as Mr. Jenkins pointed out, when Congress meant to exempt a particular type of security from Section 12.2, it did that explicitly as well. So when Congress meant there to be exemptions, it enacted them. Justice Breyer asked you whether one aspect of the definition of prospectus is carried over into the phrase oral communication. What about the the aspect that requires a a prospectus to be uh, uh, in connection with the offer to sell? In connection with the offer or confirmation of sale, is 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 oral statement in in uh, in section 12 uh, limited to that as well? I believe it is, Your Honor, by the by means of language in section 12.2. I think to say that a particular security is sold by means of either a written or oral communication means that that statement is made in connection with the solicitation of the sale. I think the whole purpose of Section 12.2 was to focus in on that process by which sellers solicit buyers. And the focus of the by means of clause, I believe, is is to hone it right in on just that, on those statements, whether oral or written, that are used to solicit sales of securities. I want to return to just one other point in the text of Section 12.2 itself, if I may. Uh, and that's the term oral communication. Uh, this court has said repeatedly, most recently in FDIC versus Meyer, uh, that undefined statutory terms are to be given their ordinary or natural meaning. Now, petitioners cannot dispute that giving the words of the statute their ordinary meaning, Section 12.2 on its face, unambiguously applies to any security sold by means of a false or misleading oral communication. There simply is no connotation you can give to oral communication that limits it to a public offering or an initial offering of security. To the contrary, an oral communication is going to occur most often in the context of a private transaction, a negotiated transaction where people are talking to each other. So oral communication, it seems, if you read it just in its natural sense, 
clearly applies to all transactions. Now, they say you can't do that. You have to look to prospectus as a term of limitation on oral communication. Uh, it seems to me that what they're asking you to do is take a term that uh, we think is unambiguously defined, that is prospectus, find some ambiguity in that, construe it narrowly, and then use that to narrow a clearly uh, broad term. You're suggesting that one of the major purposes Congress had in mind was to eliminate the statute of frauds from these transactions? I don't think that was a major purpose. No, either. I think the major purpose Congress had in mind was it to It surely wasn't primarily concerned with oral communications. I, I don't disagree with that, Your Honor. I don't disagree with that. Um, I would note that in the conference report on the bill, in discussing Section 12 in particular, and this is one of the few places we have any reference to Section 12 in the legislative history, in paraphrasing Section 12, the conference committee said that this bill reaches uh, the sales of securities by means of representations which are untrue or misleading. That's a very broad term. Representations which are untrue or misleading. Is it fair to say, though, that the 1933 Securities Act is really an act um, that uh, concerned initial public offerings, and that the 34 Act generally addressed uh, private and secondary trading? I think. As and isn't that the general thrust? As a generality, I think that's correct, Your Honor, but I'd like to respond to that yeah, in a couple of and, ways. And so this interpretation of 12.2 doesn't fit exactly with that general thrust. If you're going to limit the statute by the primary purpose, I think you, one could make that argument. Um, it is interesting that in the 34 Act, there was no express right of action created that would cover the transaction in our case. So I think that suggests just the contrary, that Congress thought they had taken care of that in 1933. Could you have brought a 10b-5 action? In theory, we could. The reason we didn't allege it was because we felt we didn't have a Rule 11 basis for asserting fraud, scienter. And so we brought the cause of action. We felt the facts supported. But let me return to the question about primary purpose. I I think the situation here is analogous to, to RICO, a statute this Court has construed repeatedly in the last few years. You can look at the legislative history of RICO, and it is absolutely clear that what motivated RICO, the primary purpose, was to seek the eradication of organized crime in the United States. And yet Congress wrote the statute to pick up persons other than mobsters or organized criminals. A good example. Um, And this Court has said we're going to construe RICO not in light of what was the primary motivation, but the way Congress wrote the statute. And I suggest that's what the Court should do here with Section 12.2, is construe the statute the way Congress wrote it. Put us in the same boat we are with I, all those unpleasant RICO cases. Your, your Honor, Your Honor, that's, that's a good point, but, but I, I think I have a response to it. It has been the law in the circuits for 50 years that Section 12.2 reaches privately negotiated sales of securities. Even today, no appellate court has ever reached a contrary conclusion. That tells us something uh, about, one, how the statute should be read. Two, uh, this Court has said on a number of occasions that it is inappropriate to set aside longstanding interpretations of express statutory remedies that parties have come to rely on. But third, in response to your question, uh, Justice O'Connor, there simply hasn't been a flood of Section 12.2 suits. This cause of action has been around for 50 years. Because of our more recent 
uh, holding here as to the Sienta requirement under 10b-5? Perhaps I think the explanation is that Section 12-2, even if you read the term prospectus as we think it should be read, still applies to a fairly narrow universe of transactions. You have to be able to prove that you bought from the seller. You have to prove that he sold to you by means of some misleading statement. It really focuses in on those transactions that are a small subset of what is driving the explosion of securities litigation in the country today. I don't think a ruling construing the statute our way is going to add to the burden of the federal courts or cause an explosion of litigation. It hasn't happened today. There are no further questions. I thank the Court. Thank you, Mr. Kopecki. Uh, Mr. Dreeben. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In our view, the uh, cause of action provided in Section 12.2 of the Securities Act of 1933 does extend to all sales of securities made by means of a prospectus or oral communication that contains a misleading statement. And there is no limitation to initial offerings, initial public offerings, or, uh, or an exclusion of private transactions or secondary transactions. <laughs> the key in construing Section 12.2 is the phrase prospectus or oral communication, which is a defined term in the Act. And when one looks at the definition in Section 210 of prospectus, um, it's fairly clear that Congress used words that cover a very, very broad range of kinds of communications that um, offer a security for sale, or confirm the sale of a security. And uh, as my co-counsel alluded to, the origins of the statutory definition of prospectus are very revealing because they show that the first four terms in that definition uh, are the same that appear in the British Companies Act. And there is uh, evidence from the people who wrote this act that they used the British Companies Act as a model. Mr. Uh, Dreeben, how do you answer Justice Kennedy's question about Section 10, which uses the word a prospectus, but that is definitely the kind of prospectus that would be part of a registration statement. There, the word prospectus does have a circumscribed meaning. Well, for most of Section 10, that is true. Uh, Section 10 is by and large concerned with the kind of formal prospectus that's included with a registration statement. There is also authority for the Commission later in Section 10 to classify various prospectuses according to type. And that is not a limitation that would necessarily apply to uh, prospectuses filed in a registration statement. But I think the most important point here is that the structure of the Act, the securities laws as a whole, reflects that Congress understood the difference between the broad definition in Section 210 and the narrower association of a prospectus used in a registration statement. In the Investment Companies Act of 1940, uh, Congress included a definition of prospectus that says prospectus for certain sections of the Act means the prospectus that is described in Section 10 of the Securities Act of 1933. Elsewhere, it has the definition uh, that is contained in Section 210 of the Securities Act of 1933. So Congress itself was fully capable of drawing that distinction. And the Act itself invites courts to draw appropriate distinctions. Well, Mr. Dreeben, speaking of distinctions, what would you do about research reports that brokers commonly use in the sale of securities? There is no one unqualified answer to that, Justice O'Connor. The question would be, is the research report being used as a selling tool by the broker? If the broker isn't using this... Broadly speaking, how could it not be? (laughs) I mean, the broker says, well, 
here's a stock to consider, and here's our research report. Well, I think in that context, Justice O'Connor, a research report would be the kind of document that's picked up by the language and the application of Section 2, 12.2 would be justified. Uh, so all research reports sent out by brokers are prospecti. To the extent that they are used in a situation that one can conclude, Justice Kennedy, that uh, they are offering security for sale. Um, Does that mean they have the same high standard of full disclosure that the prospectus that accompanies the normal public offering has? No, uh, Justice Stevens, they don't, because the, the requirement that would attach under 12.2 is not a requirement of affirmative disclosure. The only requirement that's imposed by virtue of 12.2 is that the research report not contain false or misleading statements. And misleading statements in this context means an omission which makes the statements that are made um, misleading. Well, that's the same standard under the prospectus. Well, but the, the question that I thought you were asking, Justice Stevens, is whether there was a laundry list of things that had to be included in a, um, in, a pros- in a research report analogous to the kinds of things that are required to be included in a registered public not, offering. Not by itemized, but it has the same standard, same high standard of care. Well, it would have, a, it would have the same standard of care under Section 12.2. Of course, under Section 11 of the Securities Act, a registered offering would subject the issuer to strict liability for right. misstatements. Yeah. And the uh, persons who signed the registration statement would also have a very high duty of care. May I ask, since I've interrupted you, do you know the answer to my question about the British Companies Act? How do the English treat this? The, the British Companies Act only applies to initial public offerings. It doesn't regulate any secondary transactions, and it doesn't regulate private transactions. And the point that I was trying to make about the comparison between the language is that the British Companies Act quite deliberately included the words prospective, circular, etc., and then said, um, use in offering of securities to the public. And the Securities Act drafters dropped that language and substituted in the words which offers any security for sale, which really expresses a quite different and deliberately broader connotation. And when picked up in 12.2, I think as Justice Ginsburg indicated, you can have offering circulars that are used in private placements, private transactions. The the plain language of the statute quite clearly applies to uh, seller misstatements in the context of those transactions. Mr. Grieben, do we owe any deference to the SEC interpretation of these sections? Not in the sense of of Chevron, uh, Justice O'Connor. We're not asking for deference in that sense. But we do think that it is extraordinarily revealing and very important to the construction of 12.2 that at the time that this statute was passed, the administrators who were responsible for its implementation, which was the Federal Trade Commission, issued releases that quite clearly said that the act in the main applies to new public offerings, but note industry that Section 17 and Section 12.2 apply also to old securities which exist in the marketplace already. Section 17, of course, is the remedy that the government has available uh, against fraud. Well, that would just uh, affect the distinction between initial and secondary, not necessarily between public and private. Uh, that is true. Um, but the, the, in addition to the, the uh, interpretations by the Federal Trade Commission, there were also a raft of articles that were written at the time or around the time by such people as William O. Douglas and Felix Frankfurter. Felix Frankfurter was at the time very heavily involved in the drafting process. And those articles asserted without qualification that Section 12.2 applied to any sale of securities and wanted to educate the investment community that was concerned with this that that was true. This understanding continued not only immediately after the 33 Act was passed, but for decades until the late 1980s. 
Um, there was very significant work trying to revise the Act in 1940, in which the industry and the Commission together met, and everybody understood and expressed in written documents that Section 12.2 applies to a really broad range of transactions. It doesn't distinguish among the various types. It doesn't distinguish broker transactions from uh, initial public offerings. And it should. And recommendations were made to Congress to amend it. And then World War II came along, and those amendments were not acted upon. But the revealing thing here is that these very knowledgeable practitioners who had every reason to understand... One question that prompts is, how do you account for the fact there have been so very few cases like this? Well, the, the, um, probably the principal explanation in years up until the late 1980s was the existence of Rule 10b-5 and causes of action under it, which had really swamped the area. Um, and so the litigation under 12.2 certainly did increase as... Uh, the statute of limitations for Rule 10b-5 was held to be shorter, and enter requirements were imposed. Uh, but it is a very significant point, Justice Stevens, that Rule 10b-5 did not exist when the 33 and 34 Acts were enacted. Can, can I ask you a quick question about the research report? Sure. Uh, a research report is this would perhaps be you, sent, you offer something for sale, you include a research report, it would be picked up. Yes. But I take it you could get out of that if, in fact, you ha- it closed as well a prospectus it had met the SEC's registration requirement because of the exception in A. Is that right or not? That question has not been definitively decided in the courts. The weight of the view of commentators is that the exceptions mm-hmm. that are contained um, in Section 210 do not apply to the remedy that's provided in Section 12.2. There are several reasons for that. Um, and there is a statutory argument that supports it. The first reason is that there is an unequivocal statement in the House report that assumed that free writing, oral communications made in the sale of securities are absolutely covered by Section 12.2, whether or not a prospectus has been delivered. There was no sort of free zone for fraud in that area. And the statute allows you to reach that result because it introduces all of its and definitions. That's oral, free writing oral. Oral isn't picked up with the definition to prospectus. Prospectus picks up the written part. That is true. The, the legislative history doesn't. I, I may have missed Is there any reason A and B don't apply? The reason is. I, written. We're written. The reason is that the result would be that you would have a free zone for fraud or misstatements so long as you provided a copy of the written prospectus, and commentators have viewed that as an implausible result and one that is contrary to the direct evidence of legislative intent. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Thank you. Mr. Jenkins, you have three minutes remaining. The fundamental issue here is whether, when everybody says the 33 Act was following the British Act, which only applied to public offerings, Congress somehow in the process, by Section 12.2, totally convert the 33 Act to apply to all private communications in all privately negotiated contexts. The references by the draftsman, by the House report, and others that were involved in the process, not later commentary in magazines, demonstrate irrefutably that the overall scope of the Act and its civil liability provisions in particular didn't expand so drastically from the British Companies Act. They said it was the same act. What do you say about the commentators named Frankfurter and Douglas? Mr. Frankfurter was involved in the drafting of the act, but not as heavily as Mr. Landis, I think, if you believe what Mr. Landis wrote, which may be a stretch, I don't know, but it, it appears accurate that Mr. Frankfurter was overseeing it, but was not as heavily drafted. In fact, I think Mr. Landis, in his article, referred to Mr. Frankfurter seeing the draft of the Act for the first time before a meeting or something along those lines. He was not as heavily involved as Mr. Landis, who said, 
public offerings, not private offerings, defines the exact scope of the Act. The Act was not intended to regulate sales to institutional. British Act, which did include an express limitation to public offerings. I think that the simple answer is the fellow wasn't necessary. The whole design of the first ten sections of the Act, and in particular Section 5, the heart of the Act, is directed solely at one context, public offerings. Everything else is exempt. You see, you rely on the using the same litany of uh, prospectus, notice, circular, etc., but then uh, say, well, it's all right for them to have skipped out the uh, other part. They didn't, they didn't copy the British wording to that extent. That's correct. They did not follow the phrase, include the phrase, to the public, which is in the British Companies Act, but Congress repeatedly said, the draftsman said, this act is the British Securities Act. How could those statements be correctly made if one applies only to public distributions and the other is much, much broader, applying to every private transaction that ever involves a sale of a security and an interstate communication? The, the lack of any explanation, specific discussion, or anything anywhere in the legislative history or the House report of any notation that the Act extended so much more broadly is, to our mind, very, very strong proof that Congress, none of the congressmen, none of the drafters intended such a broad departure from the public offering context. They just simply couldn't have said the things they said in the reports about the Act or in Mr. Landis's article about the Act if that were the case, if the Act intended to go into such a wide range of private negotiated transactions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.